I'm going to read this story. It's, by, uh, it's called The Giving Tree. Have anybody, has anybody ever read this? It's a children's book. Um, it's by Shel Silverstein. And, uh, and this guy, Shel is actually not his name. It's what he goes by. But um, he wrote this, this story. And I didn't know this. We read this to our daughter a lot. But um, he wrote this story as a kind of a kid's um, writing of our relationship with Jesus. And so it's really interesting. What's up, Devin? And um, so I'm going to read this. And, um, and then we're just going to go into the message. So here we go. Um, hopefully there's no copyright infringement with what I'm about to do. <clears throat> the giving tree. All right. Once, once there was a tree, and she loved a little boy. And every day the boy would come, and he would gather her leaves and make them into crowns and play king of the forest. He would climb up her trunk and swing from her branches. I'm going to cry so much today. He would climb up her trunk and swing from her branches. And when he was tired, he would fall asleep in her shade. And the boy loved the tree very much, and the tree was happy. But time went by, and the boy grew older, and the tree was often alone. Then one day the boy came to the tree and said, Come, boy, come climb up my trunk and swing from my branches, and eat apples, and play in my shade, and be happy. I'm too big to climb and play, the boy said. I want to buy things and have fun. I want some money. Can you give me some money? I'm sorry, said the tree, but I have no money. I only have leaves and apples. (sighs) Take my apples, boy, and sell them in the city. Then you'll have money and you'll be happy. Oh, man. So the boy climbed up the tree, gathered her apples, carried them away, and the tree was happy. But the boy stayed away a long time, and the tree was sad. Then one day the boy came back, and the tree shook with joy and said, Come, boy, climb up my trunk and swing from my branches and eat apples and play in my shade and be happy. And he said... I'm too busy to climb trees, said the boy. Y'all just bear with me. I want a house to keep me warm, he said. I want a wife and I want children, so I need a house. Can you give me a house? I have no house, said the tree. The forest is my house, said the tree. But you may cut off my branches and build a house. Then you'll be happy. So the boy cut off her branches and carried them away to build a house, and the tree was happy. But the boy stayed away for a long time, and the tree was sad. And when he came back, the tree was so happy she could hardly speak. Come, boy, she whispered, come and play. I'm too old and sad to play, said the boy. I want a boat that will take me away from here. Can you give me a boat? Cut down my trunk and make a boat, said the tree. Then you can sail away and be happy. So the boy cut down her trunk and made a boat and sailed away. And the tree was happy, but not really. And after a long time, the boy came back again. I'm sorry, boy, said the tree, but I have nothing left to give you. My apples are gone. My teeth are too weak for for an apple, said the boy. My branches are gone, said the tree. You can't swing on them. I'm too old to swing on branches, said the boy. My trunk is gone. 
said the tree. You can't climb. I'm too tired to climb, said the boy. I'm sorry, sighed the tree. I wish that I could give you something, but I have nothing left. I'm just an old stump. I'm sorry. I don't need very much now, said the boy. Just a quiet place to sit and rest. I am very tired. Well, said the tree, straightening herself up as much as she could. An old stump is good for sitting and resting. Come, boy, sit and rest. And the tree was happy. The past two weeks, I've been brought back to this um, root system, I guess you would say. And the Lord has, has shifted how I see him in a significant way. That is why I'm so broken today. And it's not because I'm sad. It's because I'm so thankful that we have a God who is not a distant deity waiting for me to give him anything. That he is so in love with us that his happiness is found in giving. The nature of God we miss often is his generosity. We think we have something to give God that if wrapped up perfectly will make him happy. But like every part of who Yahweh is, his happiness is unfathomable to the human mind. He is beyond finding out. He loves like we know love to be in one moment and then transcends far beyond the bounds of psychoanalysis that it calls into question our seeming understanding felt moments before. What you have to give God, what you have to give him by itself is of no value. Y'all with me? He needs Nothing that we have to offer. Value to him is not determined by what is given, but by the one giving it. Thus, his ultimate happiness is not in receiving, but in giving to the one who has ravished his holy heart to the core. Your most pure form of worship is when you slow down, become aware, open wide, and drink deeply of the generous kindness of his unfailing love. This is really funny because she actually brought me one of these this morning, and I meant to bring it out here, but I left it in my office to tape up on the wall. Um, when my daughter writes me a note, she writes me notes all the time. She brought me one this morning. Actually, this morning it was a picture. All right. Let me explain this. The note by itself is of no value. It's not legible. It's smeared. It's crumbled up. It's torn. So if I take it to a pawn shop and say, how much will you give me for this? They're going to say, nothing. It's worth nothing. 
However, however, those letters are my most prized possessions. How is something that is worth absolutely nothing on its own worth more than all the money that this world could buy when given to me by someone of identity? Do you hear this? What we have to give him by itself is worth nothing. My best worship is poor compared to the worship he's receiving on a 24-7 basis. The best I have to give him is nothing. He doesn't need my songs. He doesn't need what I can preach. He doesn't need my devotion. He doesn't need any of it. However, when I open my mouth and release a frequency, it hits him in a more valuable way than the angels swirling around the throne singing, holy, holy, the seraphim, swirling around the throne singing, holy, 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 holy. The most pure worship that heaven has to offer pales in comparison to the worst worship that I have to offer. Not because my worship is worth anything, but because I'm his son. Now, when she gives me a letter, I love it. It's valuable. I tape it on my walls, and I don't tape stuff on my walls, right? That's cheesy. I don't tape stuff on my walls. But you better believe I'm going to tape her letter on my wall, right? Because she gave it to me. Now, there's that happiness. But on Christmas Day, on Christmas Day, or on, let's say her birthday. Let's use her birthday because I don't want to ruin anybody. When, um, on her birthday, it was last week, we gave her gifts for her birthday. And she was so excited. She loved the gifts. And the happiness that Jordan and I felt in giving her gifts was, I would say, the utmost happiness that we could ever feel in life. So I receive a level of happiness from what she has to give me, even if it's of no value on its own. But that pales, again, in comparison to the happiness that I get when I give her something. Right? We build our whole lives on thinking that we've got to give, 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 and that's what's going to make him happy. And it doesn't. It does but only because you're a son or daughter. And what really makes him happy is when you can stop, open your hands, breathe deep, and know that he is good. No amount of wrong, sin, brokenness, or even doubt could ever have an impact on the love of the one who says to Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. We judge worth off of what we've done or what we do because that's how we judge other people's worth. What have you done for me? We judge everybody in our society. We judge people and their worth not by who they are but by what they have done. So if somebody hurts you, all of a sudden their worth just drops significantly in your eyes. Right? So we, we, we build up our lives in a culture 
that is based on worth being determined by what you do. Okay? But when you're a kid, when you're a kid, you worry about two things. You have two worries in life, and that is having fun and trusting that mom and dad or whoever raised you has everything else under control. That's it. When you're a kid, for the most part, I don't know people grew up in different situations. When you're a kid, you have two worries, having fun and trusting that everything else is taken care of. Right? Over time, we get disappointed. We get let down. We get through experiences. And we realize that the world, the grown-up world, judges our worth based on what we do. So our trust and our worth and our value shifts from having fun and trusting mom and dad to I've got to earn it or else I'm worth nothing. And so we start building our lives on earning, 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 doing, doing, doing. And as we do that, we then are introduced to the God of religion that is only interested in what you do. And your value is found in what you do. So we have services where you have to say the right things. You have to sing the right things. You have to sing out of the right books, right? You have to show up to the right events. You have to serve the right amount of times. You have to make sure you're in the right amount of groups. And then we say, this is what devotion looks like. You have to read your Bible five minutes a day. You have to make sure you're on a Bible reading plan. you got to pray this many times a day. you got to journal. And when we show up at a community night, we're going to make sure that you have done those things because that's what it means to be a Christian. you got to do the right things. you got to be good morals of good morals. you got to make sure you never lie. You've got to make sure that you always give. Right? And literally everything we teach people about Christianity, everything we teach people about God, and everything we teach people about themselves is all built on what you do and if you don't live up to those things that you're supposed to do then guess what you have failed right when the god of the bible is not interested in what we do our what we do is worth nothing he's only interested in who we are So Christ didn't come to give birth to a religion. Christ came to win back his family. Adam and Eve weren't placed in a garden as servants of God. Adam and Eve were placed in the garden with the image of God. And I would dare say God raised them to an equal place with God. So we weren't introduced to that. What we were introduced to is a God who is mad and ready to throw lightning bolts at the moment we mess up. But the true God is a God that will sit on the front porch year after year after year after year until his son or daughter comes running around the corner so that he can sprint, losing all of his air, to return to you everything that you didn't lose, you wasted This is the God of the Bible, that you have so much worth that with you being covered in pig filth, he's going to run and replace your pig filth with his own robe. Paul said, my righteousness is like filthy rags, but not when you encounter Jesus. When you encounter Jesus, you hand Jesus your filthy rags and he hands you a spotless robe. Not because of what you've done, but because of now who you are, which is son of God, 
daughter of God, John 17, he loves you with the same love that he loves his son with. Jesus says, when you pray, pray like this. Papa. To all the Pharisees, they don't pray that. Praying things like Papa is what got Jesus on the cross. What got Jesus on the cross was not the miracles. It was him saying, Father. Who you think you are? Father. You have Pharisees walking around like, God, dear. You know, I was joking this week. Uh, Depending on, depending on, let me just break up the tension. Depending on like what background, you say God differently. And so I was just thinking about this, you know, if you're like, if you're in missions, you know, you say God, God, you know, like God's really going to, you know, God's really going to change the nation. And then if you go up in the South, it's more like good. Like, man, praise the, praise the Lord, good is good. You know, like, it's just, depending on how you say it, right? And so I was thinking about this this week. It's really funny breaking up, but anyway. But the religious Pharisees are walking around, you know, like, dear, dear God, mighty power. You know, like, you know, praying like that. And then you got Jesus that comes onto the scene, who's the Son of God, God himself, comes onto the scene and starts saying, Papa. And all the Pharisees, on top of the religious class, on top of the religious world, are hearing this nobody from Nazareth. This carpenter. Isn't that, this what, isn't that Joseph's son, the carpenter? What on earth is he doing saying father? Who is he to approach God as father? That's what got him on the cross. Not the miracles. It was Papa. But he says, when you pray, pray this. Papa, our father. Abba is the translation. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And he begins to introduce us to what we were designed to be in, which is not a religion. Christianity is not a religion. We've made, people have made it a religion. It, it's not a religion. It doesn't work. Christianity is a family. You understand this? We say this a lot, but we don't live it. We, so we judge worth off of what we've done or what we do because that's how we judge other people's work, or worth. Um, that is what I call deistic love. And I think I mentioned this last week. But it's love in response, okay? Deistic, that means deity, like a love from a god, like Buddha, whoever you want to say, all these false, crazy gods. Um, Buddha could lay off of the McDonald's as well. But... Um, all these false, crazy gods, right? They're all built on you doing this, 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 and then this fake idol is going to be pleased. That's what religion is based off of. Christianity is based off of God's pleased. <laughs> so his love is not a deistic love. His love, i got to stretch this little cable out because it's about to drive me crazy. His love is a paternal love. Love, paternal love, paternal love from a paternal father who knit us together in the womb, saying, I love you because you're mine. My love, God's love, is in our DNA. If you could tear your DNA apart and see the strands that make it up, it would be the love of God. 
Christianity is not us giving God something to respond to. It's us responding to what Yahweh gives us. God's response to an evil world, send the expressed image of his kindness and love, Jesus. God's response to sin, to send the expressed image of his kindness and love. God's response to a nation who had turned away, Salah, is to send the image of his kindness and love. His response to the lost and dying world, not escape, to send the expressed image of his kindness and love. His answer to his adulterous beloved, the church as we call her, was not condemnation to death, but an invitation to taste and see that he's actually as good as he says. If I'm the only one that gets something out of this, then that's cool with me. The birth of Jesus is the story of a papa so generous that he bankrupts heaven to get his kids back. It's his attempt to prove to us that he is not fickle and hot-headed, that he's kind, he's patient, and so loving that he'll make sure you see how much he actually loves you. You're not perfect because you never sin. You're perfect because you're his kid. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. If it's better to give than to receive, we need to stop seeing Abba as one who primarily finds pleasure in receiving. His pleasure is in giving to his beloved. Breathe deep and know that he's good. Breathe deep. I like kind of reading this uh, story, The Giving Tree, because the tree, and I cried through the whole thing, mostly because it reminded me of my daughter. Um, <laughs> but that's what you do when you have kids. You just cry all the time. But um, in this story, it hit me this week. I read this Monday, and um, I actually heard it Monday, and then went back and read it. But um, the whole story is about a tree that finds happiness in, in the boy's happiness. And so when the boy comes back and says, I need a boat, the tree says, cut me down and make a boat. You know what I mean? Like, if you need, you need money, cut off my apples and take them and sell them and you'll have money. You know what I'm saying? And so with how we see the Lord, do we see him in that light? And I know that's real childish, but we need to get back to a childlike faith. Jesus says, unless you become like a child, you'll never see the kingdom. So I know it's childish, but maybe that's our issue. Maybe we've made things so mature and adult that we've missed the child. I mean, that, that was God's. God sending the Messiah did not send him through some big earth-shattering explosion and he was there. He sent him in a baby. I believe that was a prophetic sign that the way we get to Jesus is getting back to the baby. And then he says things like this, unless you're born again. Right? Nicodemus, how, how do I have eternal life? You must be born again. What's he saying? You've got to get back to the place where all you worried about was how much fun I could have, how much wonder I could see in the world around me, and anything else mom and dad's got taken care of. John's gospel, I'm going to John 1, um, is a gospel of the beloved. This little clip back here has come loose, so that's why I'm playing with this cable. Let me see. Real awkwardly, if I can get it back. If not, that's okay. Um, I would ask Jordan to come up here and do it. There he goes. Okay, we're good. Whew. All right. 
Thank you, Lord. John's gospel is the gospel of the beloved, okay? John saw what none of the others saw because he was so deeply rooted in who he was. For example, all throughout the book of John, John refers to himself not as John. He refers to himself as the one Jesus loved. Now, how much guts does it take when you're writing what would be eventually one of the four accounts of the Messiah that we have all throughout history, and you're writing, and you don't put your name. You put the one Jesus loved. You know what I'm saying? Like, like when somebody reads a memoir or whatever about my life, that would be awesome. It's like, like not Josh, Josh preached a great sermon on this day. It's the one Jesus loved preached a great sermon. You know what I'm saying? Like, I think that's so cool. But anyway, so John is considered the beloved because uh, he considered himself the one Jesus loved, okay? He also wrote Revelation, the book of Revelation, and he also wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. Um, John saw what none of the others saw. He got a picture into the divine that no one else got that we now call the book of Revelation. The unveiling is, is the Greek, okay? Matthew and Luke's account of Jesus starts at his birth, right? We read this all throughout. We're going to read it next week. Matthew and Luke's account of Jesus starts at his birth. But John's account starts in eternity past and the beginning of creation. Really interesting. The synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, are about proving Jesus is the Messiah by giving accounts of what Jesus did. Okay, If you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you'll read a lot about what Jesus did. They typically have most of the same stuff, most of the same stories, give or take. Um, so they're about proving who Jesus was, his Messiahship, by what he did. John's gospel is about proving Jesus was the Messiah by unveiling the revelation of who he was. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke are about what Jesus did, which proves he's the Messiah. John's gospel is about who Jesus was, which proves he's the Messiah. Okay? So that's the big shift. That's why most people, their favorite gospel, if you'll ask them, is usually John. It's mine. Um, so John 1, y'all turn with me. Everybody stay awake. Everybody stay alert. This is huge. And uh, maybe you won't see it for 40 years, but that's okay. All right. John 1, verse 1. In the beginning, in the very beginning, the living expression, I'm reading out the passage translation. The living expression was already there. The living expression, which is uh, another translation for the word. The logos is the Greek. Um, but the living expression was God, yet fully God. Or excuse me. Let me, sit, let me start over. In the beginning, very beginning, the living expression was already there. And the living expression was with God, yet fully God. They were together, face to face, in the very beginning. And through his creative inspiration, this living expression made all things. Okay? Talking about Jesus. You ready? So think about it. Through Jesus' creative expression, Jesus made all things. He's talking about Jesus there. So how does that shift Genesis 1 for us? Okay. For nothing has existed apart from him. Apart from who? The Word. Who was the Word? Jesus. It was God, but it was expressed through Jesus, the Messiah, okay? Life came into being because of him, and uh, for his life is light for all humanity, 
And this living expression is the light that bursts through the gloom, the light that darkness could not diminish. Then suddenly a man appeared who was sent from God, a messenger named John. For he came to be a witness to point the way to the light of life and to help everyone believe. John was not the light, but he came to show who was. Now this is, gets confusing. He's talking about John the Baptist or the baptizer. Um, he wasn't a Baptist. People get that confused. Um, you wouldn't believe. You would not believe. Um, he's called Baptist because he baptized. So anyway, um, I'd love, we should get back to that. But, um, so John, the beloved, is writing, but, he, but the John he's talking about here is John the baptizer. Okay, so just to make sure everybody's clear on that. John was not the light, but he came to show who is. For he was merely a messenger to speak the truth about the light. Verse 9, for the light of truth was about to come into the world and shine upon everyone. He entered into the very world he created, yet the world was unaware. One more time. He entered into the very world that he created, yet that same world was completely unaware. He came to the very people he created, to those who should have recognized him, but they did not receive him. But those who embraced him and took hold of his name were given authority to become the children of God. And uh, he was not born by the joining of human parents or from natural means or by a man's desire, but he was born of God. And so this living expression became a man and lived among us. That word lived among us is he, tab- he pitched his tent or he tabernacled among us. And it's pointing back to Exodus when the Spirit of the Lord filled the temple or the tabernacle in, uh, in the wilderness. Okay, So a lot of connections here. He lived among us. We gazed upon the splendor of his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, overflowing with what? Judgment? No. Overflowing with tender mercy and truth. John taught about the truth, or taught the truth about him when he announced to the people, He is the one, set your hearts on him. I told you he would come after me, even though he ranks far above me, for he existed before I was ever born. Now, in the natural, John was older than Jesus, and now he's preaching a message saying, Jesus existed long before me. Okay? Verse 16 And now, out of his fullness, we are fulfilled. And from him we receive grace heaped upon more grace. Moses gave us the law, but Jesus, the anointed one, unveils truth wrapped in tender mercy. No one has ever gazed upon, listen to this right here. No one has ever gazed upon the fullness of God's splendor except the uniquely beloved son who is cherished by the father and held close to his heart. Now he has unfolded to us the full explanation of who God truly is. And that's how John introduces Jesus into the story. There's no angels. There's no virgin birth. There's none of it. John said, and I love all that stuff. We're gonna, like I said, we're going to read it next week. But John said, here's how we're going to bring Jesus into the story. In the beginning was the word. He was with God. He was God. Right? Total shift. Total shift. 
Uh, none of John's description, and I'm about to get into some real squirrely territory, um, but y'all hold with me, okay? Take a big leap. None of John's description of what ha- was happening through Jesus mentions sin. Well, brother, not, listen, none of John's, <laughs> I just love doing that, this is my thing, you know, because I can hear, I can just hear it, you know, hear it. Um, I, told, I, I, I joke all the time, I was like, one of these days leading up to Christmas, I just need to mention the phrase Santa Claus and just see how many people leave. It's just so funny. Um, it's hilarious. People just get so mad at stuff, like, y'all chill out. None of John's description of what was happening through Jesus mentions sin. None. Go back and read it. He doesn't mention sin. He doesn't mention evil. He doesn't mention wickedness. So, we often hear things around Christmas like, Jesus was born to take away our sins. How many of you have ever heard that? Like going into Christmas. That Jesus was born into the world to take away our sins. And he absolutely was. Okay? Absolutely. And yet, the one who had the most intimate view of God, John, through intimacy with his son, never mentioned sin one time in his description of why the Emmanuel had actually come. So to be clear, while I'm on shaky ground, John is absolutely 100% aware of the implication of Jesus' birth and how that affected sin and wickedness. Okay, So John's not ignoring it. He's about to write a whole gospel about Jesus dying for the sins of the world. Okay, So he's not ignoring it. But, but what he's introducing to us is an is a intro into the view of God that Jesus was not in the earth just to take away sins and peace out to a distant heaven. Jesus was in the earth to fix how we viewed God as angry and distant and shift us into the place that we see him for who he is, which is Abba. That's why Jesus came to the earth. In order to do that, he had to take away our sins. Okay? So in in order to get us back to son and daughtership, he had to pay for our sins. But his primary goal in even paying for our sins was not that so we would just be spotless now. It was so that we would be sons and daughters again. When he tells the story of the prodigal son, he doesn't come back and the dad just sit there and wipe him off and say, go clean him up and then we'll figure out what to do about his robe. He says, I want you to take the robe while it's dirty and switch it out. You see what I'm saying? He, all he's cared about, all John has cared about is introducing us to the one who is tender who brings truth wrapped in tender mercy to unveil the glory of the Lord to us. While we're still sinners. At this point, Jesus hasn't died on the cross yet. Okay, So John's giving us this whole description before he ever talks about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So it wasn't a shift that happened after the cross and sin was taken away. It was a shift that had never moved from where it was. We had realigned ourselves with something other than son and daughtership. So Jesus had to come to kick us back in line. And in order to do that, he had to take away sins. But back in line is not us having a sin consciousness now. Back in line is us having a son and daughtership consciousness, which if I'm being honest with you, if we could ever get that, we wouldn't think about sin ever again. The only reason we struggle with saying no and saying no and saying no and saying no is because somewhere deep down inside, we think that's going to earn us. 
It's going to earn our keep. It's not. If we could ever shift from that to saying yes to son and daughter, Papa, Abba, groom. If we could ever shift into that place, guess what would happen? You'd start saying no to things without even thinking about it. Right? Like I say all the time, I never think one time about saying no to committing adultery. You know why? Because I love my wife. So my yes to my wife has produced a no to everybody else. I never say no to everybody else. Do you see what I'm saying? So, so our falling in love produces a hatred for the things that kept us from that love. So you can't hate sin enough to be perfect, but you can love him enough to be perfect. Jesus didn't come on a military campaign. He came to find a bride. And in finding a bride, he wouldn't get a people with a new moral compass. He'd get a people who through re-identification, being born again, would deal with the impoverished view of God that they had. And through redemption, would actually deal with the roots of sin that, rather than acts of sin. Let me say this one more time because I messed it up. Okay? Okay? He didn't come on a military campaign. He came to find a bride. And in finding a bride, he would get a people with a not with a new moral compass, but a people with re-identification, and in re-identification would deal with the impoverished view of God that they had, and in redeeming that would deal with the roots of sin rather than the acts of sin. So Jesus didn't come and say, stop doing that and do this instead. He came to deal with the root system that caused you to say yes to that in the first place. Adam and Eve... Didn't we're, I said Adam and Eve weren't forced to eat the, the fruit of the tree. The enemy didn't say, you know, I'm going to hold you down and make you eat this. Sometimes we want to do that to our kids because they won't eat. You know what I'm saying? But he didn't force, has, you're, you're going to eat this. You have no choice. You're going to eat it. Eve could have said no. Adam could have said no. I didn't have to eat that. They chose to eat it. Just to be clear. Why did they choose to do that? Because of the temptation that said, you're not going to die. He knows, actually, when you eat that, that you'll be like him. And the thought pattern that God was withholding something good created distance. And when it created distance, it created false views of God. And when it created false views of God, it created false views of themselves. Because guess what they were already? The image of God. They were already like God. They didn't need to eat a fruit. They were already like him. How did they get to the place where they were oblivious to the fact that they were already like him because of the temptation that says, you're not going to die. He just knows if you'll eat it, you'll be like him. In other words, you know, man, this, this fruit is actually a good thing for you. He's withholding it from you, so just go ahead and eat it. It not matter. And in that space, begin a false view of God, and in a false view of God, because we don't create images, we're not an image. We're image reflectors. Okay? We're made in the image of God. We're not made in an image. We're made in the image of God. So either you're reflecting God's image back to him or you have no image at all. It's the, Satan has no image. He's imageless. The only image that exists is the image of God. So if you're not bearing the image of God, you're not bearing an image. We can lie and tell ourselves that we are, or religion can lie and tell us that we are, but if you don't bear the image of God, you're not bearing the image. Now listen to this, though. Listen to this. 
Here's where the lie comes in. The lie comes in in the place where we feel like the only way we bear the image of God is by acting like God. And it's not. You bear the image of God just by breathing. What is Yahweh? It's breath. Yahweh. The reason he's called Yahweh is because it's the sound of a breath. So you take a breath. By, what this, here's what this means. It means by you being alive, you worship. That's it. By you waking up this morning and taking a breath, you worship. But we never think that because that doesn't require works. It doesn't require us to earn anything. And it's not something that people praise. So you don't go to work and your boss say, you know what? I'm pleased with you. You know why? Just because you're here. You don't do that, right? Right? A lot of people wish. But... It says, I'm pleased with you because you did this, and you met this goal, and you met this goal, and you did this, right? Or your families. Maybe you have families that are a little mixed up. All of us have some mixed up pieces of our family. That's okay. That's life. But that they'll say, you know, well, man, like, what are you majoring in again? Really? Man, like, I don't, I don't know if that's a good idea. You, you know what I'm saying? Y'all, y'all know what I'm talking about? You want to be a teacher? You know, teachers don't make that much money. You know, if you uh, get all this great, and you're going to have all these student loans, and then you're going to be a teacher. Nobody's going to care about teachers. You shouldn't be. You should be a doctor. You should be. You know, right? All of, see, all of us hear this stuff, right? And our whole lives are built on: if I do this, I've earned value. If I don't do this, I'm valueless. And we shift that to God in our whole Christian life. Even devotion, even intimacy itself, is based on what I do. When's the last time you went in the secret place and didn't open your Bible? And I, I know, I know, I know, I know. You need to read your Bible, okay? This is God's Word. I read the Bible more than anybody, okay? So I, I get it. I'm not, you know. But, but why? Why do you open your Bible? Do you open your Bible because you feel like if I don't open this and read five chapters today, then I'm not worth anything? Or do you open your Bible because you're so in love you want to learn more about your beloved? And if you have a morning where you just slept in, you were too tired, you had to be at work early, and you didn't get a chance to read your five chapters, do you see yourself as less? Because if you do, that means your devotion is built on what you do. He doesn't care about what you do. He cares about you believing you are who he says you are. He cares about you being convinced that you're a son or a daughter. And if you convince you're a son or daughter, guess what? You doing your job is just as much worship as you opening this and reading 10 chapters. Because it's not about what you give. It's about who you are giving him even the poorest of what you have to offer. This is hitting me on a whole new level. I don't know if you can tell, but this is really rocking who I am, okay? So sin is what sinners do. Right? Amen? Would you agree with that statement? Be real careful. Is sin what sinners do? Yes. Okay, thanks, Tim. Let me ask you this. You ready? I told you you to be careful. If a sinner stops sinning, is he still a sinner? Thanks, Jack. See, you guys, see, that was the point. You guys are just mad. No, no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> perfect timing. You guys have a good week. Um, okay, bring it back. So, if a sinner stops sinning, is he still a sinner? Think about it. Yes. 
I mean, I, I, just, I just want to sit for a minute, okay? Sin is what sinners do. So if a sinner stops sinning, is he still a sinner? Yes. So then it must not be about what we do. Do we tell people that you'll have a relationship with Jesus if you start doing all the right things? Now, we don't say that. What we say when you repeat a prayer is, well, that's really what we mean. But we say, no, if you'll just believe, then you'll be saved. We say that all the time, right? And yet, we live our lives in a way that we really believe, in order for me to stop being a nasty sinner, I've got to stop sinning. It's a relationship with Jesus that shifts someone from sinner to saint, if you will. It's not how much or how little they do. It's a re-identification. And when you are re-identified, then guess what? Because remember what I said, sin is what sinners do. So what do righteous people do? Holiness. If sin is a product of being a sinner, then holiness is a product of being righteous. So Jesus comes in to shift the identity. And by shifting the identity of the tree, for example, it changes the fruit the tree produces. So he says things like, you'll know a tree by its fruit. Jesus says that, right? You'll know a tree by its fruit. He came not to shift the fruit on the tree, but to shift the whole tree in and of itself. Because if you shift the tree, you shift the fruit. I know I'm getting deep. I'm almost done. Okay, So Jesus' goal was not to get sinners to quit sinning, but it was to get sons and daughters to be sons and daughters. He did not come as Yahweh's expressed image of anger and fury. He came as Yahweh's expressed image of kindness and love. He cast judgment on creation. Listen to this. He cast judgment on creation, not with lightning bolts of rage, but lightning bolts of unwavering love and kindness. What do we think God's judgment looks like? If I say God is judging the earth, what do you think that's going to look like? You're going to tell me fire. You're going to tell me explosions. Apparently God's got a huge arsenal, arsenal of nuclear bombs. Um, you know what I mean? Um, you're going to tell me uh, death. You know, all that other, God's judgment. Would you believe that God's judgment was that? God, this is how God judged the earth. The earth had gone wrong. Everybody had turned away. They had turned to other gods. They had turned to idols. And he said, here's how I'm going to judge them. I'm going to put my son on a tree. All right. Now, remember the story I read, the giving tree, right? I'm going to put my son on a tree to be the giving tree for all of eternity so that my other sons and daughters will see what I actually believe about them, which is not anger that they turned away, but it's hope that they'll turn back. What does God's, God's judgment looks like that? It doesn't look like fire. It doesn't look like uh, lightning bolts. It doesn't look like Armageddon. God's judgment looks like his son on a tree to give birth to all the other sons and daughters that he wanted back. So, so, so Easter is a celebration, not of the death of Jesus. It's a celebration of the life of all the other sons and daughters that were dead before the death of Jesus. Christmas is not a celebration that the sin of the world is about to be put in its place. It is, absolutely. 
But Christmas is a celebration of the express image of love and kindness being shot into creation so that we could see what love and kindness actually looks like. I mean, so good, so good. Actions are a consequence of being. You being convinced that the birth and the cross are God's emptying of himself to you, his beloved, will cause you, will cause you to stop sinning and start living holy. Not because you're trying so hard, but because you finally stopped trying and understood that holiness is actually a gift. According to John, what did Jesus come to do? Let me just, in John, I'm not going to read it, but I'm going to summarize it. And then I'm literally almost done. This last my notes as I scroll through three pages. Um, So, John 1, this is, what did did Jesus come to do, okay? This is what Jesus came to do. You ready? Right out of what we just read. According to John, the beloved, this is Jesus' plan. This is his goal. This is why he's here, okay? It is uh, tender mercy, which in the Greek is the word charis, okay? That word can be translated grace, favor, sweetness, pleasure, or delight, So what did he come to show us? He came to show us grace, favor, sweetness, pleasure, or delight. The Aramaic is translated, it's a word, uh, tabutha, tabutha, and means loving kindness and goodness. Okay? Uh, To receive it, in verse 14, means to take hold of or lay hold of. So he came to bring truth wrapped in tender mercy. He came to bring the full explanation of God. So let me summarize all this, okay? So according to the one that Jesus loved, Jesus came to tabernacle among us, to dwell among us, to let us gaze upon God's glory and splendor, okay? Uh, listen to this. What did Jesus, why was Jesus here? He came to live among us, let us gaze upon God's glory and splendor. He came to overflow onto us tender mercy, grace, delight, pleasure, sweetness, and truth, and kindness. He came to fill us with his, God's fullness, the Holy Spirit. He came to give us grace upon grace, charis. He came to give us truth wrapped in tender mercy, and he came to give us the full expression of the mystery of who God is. 100% of that is a gift to you to, for you to receive. None of John's explanation had anything to do with what we were about to give him. 100% of John's explanation was what God intended to give to you through his son, Jesus. How much of this did we deserve? Because remember the verse, while we were still sinners, he died. So how much of this did we deserve? None. We didn't deserve any of this stuff. So what does this tell us about what God did at the first advent of Jesus? He moved, or excuse me, he, he more generously than our best understanding of generosity lavished his love upon us. First John, same John, writing this, 3.1, says this, See how very much our Father loves us. Not thee, our. For he calls us his children, and that is what we are. John, same John, okay? See how very much our Father loves us, for he calls us his children, and that is who we are. When did this 
that reality stopped moving our guts to the floor? When did we start seeing Jesus as a good person teaching others to be good people? This isn't who he is. This isn't who you are. Jesus was kindness, unimaginable, dwelling among us so that you and I could be drawn to the love in his eyes. He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So if you're looking upon the image of kindness and love that's found in the eyes of Jesus and then hear the whisper, if you've seen me, you've seen him. What does that tell us about him? That he's full of kindness and love, not ready to strike us down, but ready to lift us up. Matt, go ahead and come up here. Three more notes, three more uh, points. That's it. If Jesus was God's expression of himself as Abba in kindness that leads men to repentance, what does that make you, daughter of the king and son of the king? If Jesus was God's express image, expression of himself as Abba in kindness that leads men to repentance, what does that make you and I, sons and daughters of the king? It makes us the expressed image of his kindness and love. When people look at us, do you know what they better see? When people look at us, do you know what they should see in us? Not great ministry. I, great ministry is based on what I'm about to say. When they look at you and I, they need to look at us and see kindness and love that calls to the DNA that he knit before they were ever born within their mother's womb, that calls to their DNA and says, that's the one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If Je I said this before, and I got a lot of flack for it, but if Jesus, if Jesus came to give us our image back, and Paul writes multiple times that we're now one with Jesus, we should be in a place where we too can look at the culture and say, if you've seen me, you've seen him. Well, how could you say that? How could we not? If we're his image bearers, then we should look like his image. That's what, that's what image bearing means. It means you bear the image. So when people look at my image, guess what they should see? His image. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus wasn't saying that to say, I'm way up here and you're way down here. He's saying, I'm about to elevate you way up here. When the world looks at you, they're going to see him. I guarantee you, John the Beloved believed with everything in me, which is why he wrote his gospel, believed with everything in him, which is why he wrote his gospel calling himself the one Jesus loved over and over and over and over and over. Why? Because he bore the image of the one that he laid his head on the breast of, King James. He bore the image. So when he's writing Revelation, giving them all these insights into the divine nature of God and the events that have happened since day one of creation, as he's writing this, he's given access into that, not because of what he's done, but because of how convinced he is what Jesus said he was, which was beloved. I, this is unbelievable to me, okay? So Jesus was born in filth. He was born in a feeding trough. The Son of God was born into a feeding trough. He was born in filth to prove to the world that what Yahweh intended to do with filth was birth his image from it. One more time, one more time, because none of y'all got that. You ready? 
Last, just pay attention, last part. He was born into filth as a prophetic sign to the world of what Yahweh intended to do with filth. Birth his image from it. You could not be too dirty for the Lord. Never, ever, 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 ever. I don't care what you've done. I don't care how bad you've been. I don't care how awful your life has been. I don't care what you've been through. I don't care what you've told yourself. I don't care what other people have told you. You could not be so filthy that Papa would say, go back. Nothing you could do. Your, your best is filthy rags. That's what Paul says. He says, my righteousness is filthy rags. What is he saying? He's saying the best of right standing that I could do on my own is nothing. So it's not how good can we be, it's how much can we accept the kindness that is overflowing onto us by this man, Jesus. How much can we be convinced that the advent of Jesus was not to just deal with my nastiness, but it was actually to give me my image back. Yahweh wanted the walk in the cool of the day again. He wanted the garden with you as his image bearer and bride and son and daughter walking in the garden in the cool of the day where he could have conversations with you about stuff that nobody else cared about. Because it's not about what you say to him, it's about you being there. My daughter talks to me about stuff that I don't even know what she's talking about. And you know what? We'll talk about that forever. Do you know why? It's not because of the content of the conversation. It's because of the one present in the conversation. We think we've got to pray these big giant prayers and say in Jesus' name as if it's some abracadabra and then all of a sudden it's going to happen. Praying in Jesus' name is praying as a son or daughter who is convinced that you are who he says you are, which is he loves you with the same love he loves his son, which is one with Jesus, which is co-seated on a throne you didn't earn. We're seated on the throne of Jesus, and we did nothing to earn it. He gave it to us. You know what Psalm says? He says, ask of me, and I'll give you the nations as your inheritance. Ask, and you shall receive. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and the door shall be open for you. He doesn't say if you get right, if you clean up, if you do everything else right, and if you say in Jesus' name, then you'll receive. He says, if you'll just ask. I'm able to do immeasurably more than all you could ever ask or imagine. My daughter walking, you know, I saw this the other day. Apparently, um, we're about to be this week, possibly in view of the Northern Lights. Did y'all see this on the news that they're kind of like scooping down and some of the uh, Carolinas are going to be able to see them one night this week. I believe it's Tuesday, but don't quote me on that. Um, but listen, 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 listen. Don't, don't Google. Listen. Were you Googling, Kyle? <laughs> no. Okay, so listen, listen, listen. My daughter, we're walking. You remember this last week? We're walking, we're walking on, this, uh, on, on our pond in our neighborhood. And, and it's, it feels like it's up on a mountain to her because it's so high. And, um, and we're walking, and she stops, and it's just the sunset. And she says, the northern lights. You know? And just uh, in awe. And I'm like, man, that is a pretty sunset. And then I see this. I wonder, and I, listen, this is, I, I'm getting my dreaming back. Like, I'm telling y'all, the, what the Lord's doing in me, I'm starting to dream things I never dreamed. Okay? So you can call me crazy. I've been called crazy this week. That's fine. I don't care. That's more complex. I'll, I'll get crazier. But I wonder if my daughter making an announcement to the sunset, Northern Lights, 
God, hearing that, responded and said, you want northern lights? I'll give you northern lights. Man. You know what I'm saying? I'm, tell, I'm telling you, what, what if we could get to the place where we're not begging and 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 saying in Jesus' name 400,555 times for us to get something and instead be so convinced that we can approach the throne of grace boldly and make our petitions known that we're going to approach his throne and say, you know what? I'd like to see some northern lights tonight. I don't live in Alaska. I don't live at the North Pole, but I live in South Carolina and I still want them. And he says, you know what? Ask of me and I'll give you whatever you want. Not because I've earned it, but because he is ready and willing to give all good things, Paul says, to those who are, I'll say it in Josh version, convinced that you are who he says you are. If Jesus, let me say this, if Jesus asked for anything, guess what he would have received? Whatever he asked. Could be anything. Jesus walking on water had nothing to do with anything. I mean, think about it. Him walking on water, what's that got to do with the whole plan of salvation? Nothing, right? It's a good story. But I wonder if Jesus was out one night with the Father and said, you know what? It'd be fun tonight. I'd like to walk on some water. Just step out and start walking. And then Peter's looking and saying, you know, if he can walk on the water, why can't I? And here goes Peter walking on the water. Would that have to do with anything? Nothing. Nothing. That's the point. That's the point. Is that it wasn't some big moment of righteousness where all of creation was about to bow to the omnipotence of God. It was a moment where a kid said, you know what would be fun? To just walk on water. And Abba said, you want to walk on water? Go ahead and take some steps. We, we, this, is, this is where we've got to get back to. We've got to get back to kids. We've got to get back to the place where all we care about is how much fun we can have and how much trust we can put in mom and dad, papa, to take care of everything else. We've got to get back to that. What does it mean to have childlike faith? Unless you approach the kingdom as one of these, Jesus says. What does it mean to have that childlike faith? It means that everything you ask or imagine is not well boxed and well put together. It's, you know what, today I'd love to see a beautiful sunset. Yahweh, would you give me a burnt orange sunset? And he says, yeah. I will. And the tree was happy. I'm going to end with this and then we're going to pray. Um, and I hope this has had the, a portion of the impact on you that it's had on me this week. But um, I just want to read this over you as a reminder. Psalm 139. Don't turn there, just listen. Psalm 139 says this. <clears throat> Lord, this is David, the beloved. Lord, you know everything there is to know about me. This is the same David that slept with somebody's wife and then had the man murdered. Same David, okay? You know everything there is to know about me. You perceive every movement of my heart and soul. You understand my every thought before it even enters my mind. You are so intimately aware of me, Lord. You read my heart like an open book. You know all the words I'm about to speak before I even start a sentence. You know every step I will take before my journey even begins. You've gone into my future to prepare the way and in kindness you follow behind me. To spare me from the harm of my past. 
Let me just read this one more time. One more time for anybody that's got a past. You ready? You've gone into my future to prepare a way. Listen to this. And in kindness, you follow behind me to spare me from the harm of my past. With your hand of love upon my life, you impart a blessing to me. This is just too wonderful, deep, and incomprehensible. Your understanding of me brings me wonder and strength. Where could I go from your spirit? Where could I run and hide from your face? If I go up to heaven, you're there. If I go to the realm of the dead, you're there too. That'll mess with some people. If I fly with wings into the shining dawn, you're there. And if I fly into, into the radiant sunset, you're there waiting. Wherever I go, your hand will guide me. Your strength will empower me. It's impossible to disappear from you or to ask the darkness to hide me. For your presence is everywhere, bringing light into my night. There is no such thing as darkness with you. The night to you is as bright as the day. There is no difference between the two. You Listen to this. You formed my innermost being, shaping my delicate inside and my intricate outside and wove them all together in my mother's womb. I thank you, God, for making me so mysteriously complex. Everything you do is marvelously breathtaking. It amazes me to think about it, how thoroughly you know me, Lord. You even form every bone in my body when you created me where? In the secret place. Carefully, skillfully shaping me from nothing to something. You saw who you created me to be before I came, became me. Before I ever saw the light of day, the numbers, the number of days you planned for me were already recorded in your book. Listen to this, last part. Every single moment you are thinking of me. Every single moment you're thinking of me. How precious and wonderful to consider that you cherish me constantly in your every thought. Oh God, your desires toward me are more than the grains of sand on every shore. When I awake each morning, you're still with me. What? what? Your every thought is about me. How many of you grew up reading that, thinking that? How, let me be honest. How many of you grew up, whether or not you, especially if you grew up in church, how many of you grew up and heard a message where somebody said, every single thought that crosses God's mind is about you? How many of you ever heard that? None, right? But you better believe we heard the rapture. We heard getting out. We heard Armageddon. We heard we got we to gotta do the ministry. We got to do all the right stuff. And the way that we get all that stuff accomplished is what? By loving the one who in kindness, every single thought that crosses his mind is about you and I. All of them. That's, that's why we started this church. I didn't start this church because I had an itch to do ministry. It's not why I started it. And if anybody starts anything with that, you, you should not start it. 
I started this church because I had seen something in the secret place that I desired to unlock in you. That's the only reason. The only reason I'm here today is not, like I said last week, because I'm qualified. I'm not. I didn't go to college. I had never preached a sermon before we started this church, ever. It's not because I'm qualified. It's because I'm conquered. You conquered in sonship or daughtership is all you need. Why? Because ask of me and I'll give you the nations as your inheritance. You know what we're going to you know how we're going to win the nations? You ready? You know how we're going to end the nations? We're going to ask. Brother, somebody asked me this a couple weeks ago. Uh, what's your what's your what's your plan for next year? <laughs> what what's your, what's your, what's your, what go, goals do y'all have next year? And I said, deeper. And he said, he was an older man. He said, uh, yeah, that's, that's good. But, you know, man, you, gotta, you really should have. And I said, that's it. That's our goal, deeper. And if it's our last year of ministry, praise be the Lord. It won't be. But, do you know what I'm saying? This, is, this, isn't, this isn't a game. Or maybe it is. Maybe, maybe it's us getting back to the place where we learn what it means to play what it means to have an imagination. I love when Lauren paints. All her paintings are back there. We still got to put them up this week. But when she's in here painting, if you've ever seen her paint, there's these beautiful like landscapes and the Lord just shows her stuff and she just throws it on a canvas. And literally, I, I wrote this this week. This is, this is so significant to me that I've started writing a book over it. And I hate books. I mean, I love books, but I hate the thought of writing a book. But, but I've written so much over this topic that I've, I'm like, I got to get it somewhere. That this is rocking my world. And, and as I was having this conversation with myself, and I mentioned this to Ellington this week too, but as I was having this conversation, when did worship go from watercolor on a blank canvas to a chore that the first excuse we have we're eager to get out of? When did that happen? My daughter loves coming to church. On sa- every Saturday we'll say, guess what tomorrow is? She'll say, what? And I'll say, Church. She's like, yeah, and then she says, tomorrow, today. Like, what she means is, like, when I wake up tomorrow and it's daylight. But she always says that, tomorrow, today. And I'm like, yes, tomorrow, today. And she's, like, screaming and jumping around the house and all that stuff. She loves coming to church. And you know what they're doing in there? They're playing. They're building stuff. They're having conversations with each other. You know, probably fighting some. You know, all that stuff. But, and what we would, we would look at that and say, man, we really need to, no, they're learning about the Lord. They're learning it through playing. They're learning it through their imagination. They're learning it by being in the church building and having fun. You know what I'm saying? We could use a dose of that. We could use a dose of what does it mean to worship? It means when you get home, you print off a coloring sheet and start coloring and see what happens. That's what we did when we were kids and had no issue. We did that when we were kids and had no issue seeing ourselves as worthy. And yet today, we do the same thing and we see ourselves as worthless because we didn't do what religion told us we had to do. And I'm telling you, your worth and my worth is going to be so sealed and so secure when we get back to the place where all we are concerned with is, let's have fun and Papa will take care of the rest. When's the last time you stared at a sunset? When's the last time that you just slowed down, turned your phone off, turned off Netflix, got off of Facebook, and was just present in a moment? When's the last time that you were in just a quiet house listening to nothing and were just still 
and heard the birds chirping and heard the wind blowing and go look at Christmas lights. Have fun. You know what I'm saying? Like, like that's who we are. This is who we are. Jesus was not miserable. He was full of joy. Joshua, the joy of the Lord is our strength. Not religion, not military might. The joy of the Lord is our strength. What does that mean? When you lack joy, you lack strength. God intends to bring strength into your life through joy. How am I going to make it through this trial? Be happy. I think some of us need to stop rebuking and we need to start printing off some coloring pages. You'll be a lot happier, have a lot more fun, and you'll accomplish a lot more in the secret place. I promise you. But this is huge. This is huge. I don't know if you're, anybody's still watching this. Probably not. That's okay. But like, uh, this, this is going to shift everything that we do. I'm telling you, as a church, this is going to shift everything. We're going to start having fun. And we have fun anyway. But we're going to have fun. We're, we're going to have a blast. We're going to enjoy the Lord. And we're going to be convinced that we could not change our identity if we tried. Do you feel the freedom in this? Freedom in it. Sorry, I cried a lot during that story. Go back and read it. Seriously, just look it up online. You can get a free PDF. That's how I'm printing this off. Forgive me. Um, we'll end up paying for that, I'm sure. But uh, I'm just playing. Go print it out and just read through it. And think, I mean, just think about this. There's another story, and I might read it next week, um, That Veda, and I'm done, um, that I might read next week. Um, but if you want to look this up, look it up too. And it's called On the Night You Were Born. Has anybody ever read that? Have y'all read that? Yeah. I'm telling you, some of these kids' writers are brilliant. Brilliant. We need to start reading some of that stuff. Like, I don't need to know about leadership. I need to know on the night I was born, the moon smiled with such wonder that the stars peeked in to see you and the night wind whispered, life will never be the same. Because ah, there had never been anyone like you ever in the world. So enchanted with you were the wind and the waves that they whispered the sound of your wonderful name. And at the end of the story, heaven blew every trumpet and played every horn on the wonderful, marvelous night you were born. Well, like, do we see that? That's what she sees. Is that what we see? Or do we see on the night we were born, God was sad and he was disappointed and said, man, there's another one I gotta tolerate. Great. Because that's what most of us believe. And that's not what, when you were born, there was such a party because it says, that's the one I've been waiting for. You know what the Lord spoke to me when we started this church? And I'm done. The Lord spoke to me and said, every time we come together, all of heaven stands in anticipation for what he's going to do through us. It's not just us. But the reason he's showing me that stuff is because they're looking at us to see what is it about them that he was willing to do that to show them he was kind. Um, just, just amazing stuff. So, Lord, I thank you for this. Yahweh, I thank you for this reality. I feel a wind in my sails that I've never had. I personally feel a wind in my sails, and I'm beginning to ask myself, I could go anywhere from here. Where do I want to go? So, Lord, I pray that you would give us that spirit, give us that joy, give us that adventure in our secret place. Let us redefine what the secret place even is. It's not giving, giving, giving. It's receiving, receiving, receiving. That's what the secret place is. So Lord, I pray that you would challenge us in how we see all of that, how we see you. And in Christmas, I pray that we would see the kindness 
of your nature exploding through everything that we do, every Christmas light, every nativity scene, every Christmas song we hear. I pray that the one thing that would ring through all of it is kindness, kindness, kindness. We love you, Abba, in your name. Amen.